I don't know if that makes a difference, but um, I, I'm really better at speaking about scripture than speaking about myself. But I think the one song kind of summarized part of biblically what we would say is the psalmist said, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God works with each of us differently, but what matters is that he's the one who works. And whether the vindication comes sometimes in this life, it always comes eternally, and we can always trust God's faithfulness. Um, I'm Medin. Um, I was born in Congo. There are two Congos, actually, in Africa. There is the DRC, if you know Janine and Joachim, they're from the DRC. I'm from Congo, Brazzaville. And a long time ago, we used to be one country. And unfortunately, both countries went through war um, and are still going through some pockets of war right now. I came to the US as an exchange student a long time ago, and um, I met Craig at Duke University. It was very interesting. Craig was full of the spirit, full of you know, prayer, and I mean, I could tell this guy really uh, talked with God, but then there was something in him that was, that was sad, and I didn't know why. <clears throat> I had been converted from unchurched background and atheism, basically off the streets, and people shared Christ with me on the street, and so I found out there was a purpose in life. Jesus was worth everything. He was what to live for. So I started sharing Christ in the streets. Uh, sometimes they got beaten, but um, many people came to Christ, and I was grateful for that. But there was something much more devastating than being beaten, because in my last year of seminary, uh, I'd been wondering, you know, in the Bible I saw that everybody that God called went through testing before they fulfilled their calling. And I wondered what my testing would be. I was thinking maybe my, my file of index cards is gonna get destroyed in a fire or something. <laughs> <clears throat> but in my last year of seminary, I found out what my test was gonna be. When my wife of three years ran off with her best friend's husband, and I was devastated, the, the, I loved her with all my heart, and the circles that I was in, if you, uh, if you were divorced, if your spouse left you, even if they came back, normally you were barred from ministry. And so the two things that mattered to me had both been taken from me. And for the first few months, the fruit of the Spirit was holding out. But after a couple months of this, you know, the Bible says to pray for those who persecute you. I was praying for the guy, all right. I was praying that God would kill him. <clears throat> you know, I, I hadn't lost my temper until then. I'd been very loving and kind. But finally, and the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I said, God, that's not fair. If, if this is my test, let me tell you, I can't pass it. And, and Lord, if... if if there has to be a choice between my wife and my calling, please send my wife back tomorrow and give my calling to somebody else. I, I know she had free will, but that really wasn't a point I wanted to bring up. I was talking to the Lord, so anyway. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I, I've been so numb. You know, 
I'd been praying like a couple hours a day before it happened, and, and at this point, for a couple months, I was just, all I could do was re repeat the name of Jesus over and over. But at this point, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. God said, my child, you are, you're like David, who, who almost snapped and went, went in to kill Nabal and every male in his household. You're like Jeremiah, who said, cursed be the day of my birth. You're like other people in the Bible. These people weren't such great heroes as you think. Sometimes they were just holding on for dear life. You don't get to choose your own tests. My child, you're a man of God, not because of what you're made out of. You're a man of God because I called you, and my grace is sufficient for you. And for the next couple of years, as I fought the divorce, it was just one day after another, clinging to God's grace. Um, eventually, the divorce went through, and um, I, I started my PhD at Duke, and, and within a month, I met this this lovely woman, as you can see, uh, very, very smart. Uh, she was an exchange student during, during her PhD at University of Paris 7, and very godly. Well, <clears throat> after I was done with my, my, my exchange studies here, I went back to France where, where I was studying. And Craig and I, we talked briefly about marriage, but we had a theological misunderstanding. Like, he was talking about being in ministry. For me, ministry was a pastor, an evangelist, a missionary, and I was not doing that, so things didn't work out, and I went back home. Meanwhile, she was doing open-air evangelism uh, on the streets of Paris. She was doing door-to-door -door evangelism in Muslim neighborhoods. Uh, counseling drug addicts, and uh, she was in the leadership team of a church she helped plant. But she said she wasn't called to ministry, so I figured we weren't compatible. I didn't. Yep. didn't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess my definition of ministry was very narrow. Anyway, I went back home, and Congo has been through war. That was the first war, and it was really in ruin. And I was praying. Craig was my best friend. I was praying for Craig. Craig was praying for me that God would bless us with a spouse. I waited and waited. People say, you're cursed. And so many things happened. Finally, I, I said, just said to myself, I'm just going to marry, you know, whoever comes and then uh, we'll go from there. And so I did. I went ahead and married. I don't recommend that. And married someone <laughs> from my country. And after about four months, I got pregnant. After about four months, war came again. Congo. And um, she neglected to mention the guy turned out to be a bigamist. Um, he strangled her while she was pregnant. And he was finally, already married. Yeah, abandoned her during, during war. Uh, okay. So Brazzaville was in war. That's the capital where we were staying. And it was very hard. What I, want, I needed to do was to get out of Brazzaville because I was one of those vulnerable people. I was a woman and I was pregnant. And so there were so many different ways to get out. I could take, I could take the train, but the trains were very crowded. And the people who died in the trains were women and pregnant women and children. I couldn't even think about the bus. It was bumpy and 
So I didn't know what to do. And as we prayed, the idea came that there were flights coming from the DRC via the Congo. They were coming from Zaire, and they will stop in Brazzaville for a brief period because they were shooting and bombing everywhere. They will take the people and take them in the interior of the country. So I put my name on the second list. She, she had malaria, and the doctor said that she wasn't going to survive if she left some other way. That's why you need to read the book. <laughs> We're skipping a lot, but... Okay, so I had my name on the second list, and we needed to leave. The flight, the, the plane was coming, and my brother was able to borrow someone else's car. And there was a person, a man who was working in the government, and he told Emmanuel, he said, okay, Emmanuel, we are in war. You have to be behind me. If you lose me, you are a dead man. And so Emmanuel tried his best to go and follow the person, and we go to, uh, we go to the airport. When we got there, we had bad news. They told us, well, everyone whose name is on the second list, you can go home, because we don't know when we will have a flight. This looks like the last flight out. And then the people on the first list, you stay. And people started to go home. Emmanuel said, no, you can't go home. You can't survive in, in trains. You can't survive in buses. You cannot walk to the place where our parents are. We have to stay here. And so we prayed. And the prayer was only one name, Jesus. That's the name above all names. And as we prayed, we waited. The flight, the flight came. The people were going into the, they gave the list to the pilot and he was reading and you go in, he reads and you go in. And we saw someone who was very restless, just looking around. We didn't know what to do. And then they called the name of a man. And the man came to me and said, go, say présent. I said, présent. I didn't even know what I was saying. The pilot said, like, go, go, go. I looked at Emmanuel. I said, thank God. He said, yes. <laughs> and so I made it in the last flight out. Yeah. <laughs> And, and meanwhile, there was shooting all around the airport, and Medin's brother had to drive back, uh, but he had to stay close to the car in front of him. As they were driving back with shooting from either side of the boulevard, oh, this keeps jumping too. As they, they were shooting from either side of the boulevard, Emmanuel's car suddenly died in the midst of the, inter, in the, midst of the boulevard, and the other car, as promised, drove on and left him there. And so, he was, he was turning the key in the ignition, praying frantically, Lord, please make the car start. Please make the car start. We'll come back to that if we have time. Uh, so, meanwhile, life was getting better for me. I was uh, ordained in an African-American church, and I finished my, my PhD, and um, my books started coming out. At that time, I had like a quarter of a million of them in print. Um, more now. But as far as uh, Emmanuel, he kept praying and praying and praying, and the car started, and he drove on, but he didn't know all the passwords. The guy had driven on without him. But fortunately, apparently, the guy said, in case his car ever starts, he's coming. So Emmanuel got back safely, and the car never ran again. And, and this is Emmanuel with David when he was a baby, mm -hmm. after he was born. So Jesus was in our midst. When I went to uh, my parents' house, I gave birth, and we started to pick out life the best we can. But it was not always, um, how would I say, always quiet. 
there were rumors of people coming. And after a few months, we were under siege by soldiers coming from Angola and other places. And one day, well, what happened was every time something would be cut, like the electricity was dead, and after that, we lost water. And so things started to happen, and we didn't have enough food sometimes. So we had to go, like, to get, fetch the water, wash the, the dirty clothes, and so on. We will go to the downtown. And that's what we did one day, my sister and I. And as we got there, we heard gunshots and bombs, and everything started. So the, the soldiers came. The siege has stopped. They came inside the, the, the town and started to kill and rape. And Aimé, my brother, when they heard all the, the noise and the guns, Aimé said, uh, I need to go and help them. So what Aimé did, he was very strong. We used to call him, we still call him the international force because he's strong and he could carry my dad like a baby. And so he started to run to come and rescue us. What he didn't know was that there were soldiers everywhere. And when he got into the middle of the main street, he froze. There were soldier, soldiers and cars, and the leader came out and started to talk to him. Now, Aimé knew that when you have an encounter like that, you're dead. So he started to pray, Lord, please forgive my sins and just receive my spirit. And he heard someone talking, saying, are you a military, are you military? They didn't even speak French. Aimé came out of that and said, like, uh, no. He said, okay, are you a soldier of Lisuba? Lisuba was the former president who was ousted. He said, no. He said, well, with gesture, he was like, well, why are you so strong? And so Aimé was like, I do exercise. <laughs> and he looked at him, he said, amigo. And he left. Jesus. That was a life saved because the Lord was there. So Aimee was able to come and help us and get us back. We, we skipped uh, Therese being raised from the dead uh, after being dead three hours, but we have to move on. So uh, Medine sent a letter out to me to pray for her. Uh, I had been so happy when she got married. I'd been so happy for her and was so devastated to find out that things had fallen apart. Um, and then... Also, now I got another letter from her, and, and I was always excited to get a letter from her, but this one said she didn't know she was going to live or die. Her cousin had just been shot dead. Her father had nearly been shot dead. Her brother had nearly been shot dead, and this was a different occasion than the one she just narrated. And so uh, she said, pray, because the rumor is they're going to start killing the uh, educated people first. By the time her letter reached me, her town had already been burned to the ground. And so for the next year and a half, I didn't know if she was alive or dead. And so we had soldiers come, come into the city one night and one morning, and they said, you have to leave this city. This is going to be a war zone. And so people left. We didn't know what to do. My dad was paralyzed. He'd had a stroke, so we stayed. We stayed for two days, but because we didn't have food or anything, we prayed. Pray that the Lord will send someone to deliver us and help us. When my dad said amen, somebody knocked at the door. And that was his nephew, and we put him in a wheelbarrow, and we carried him that way. And we came out of the war 
out, 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 not out of the war, but out of the town, out of the city, so we can have um, a place, like you can see, this is the wheelbarrow where you know, my father was pushed on. And as we left, what can we take? We took our Bibles, our birth certificates, some of us who found our diplomas, we took them, and we took Jesus on the road with us. We became refugees. Our lives were like these women. Um, you know, you carry these baskets on your, on your back. The baskets will be loaded with like um, wood, firewood that was higher and taller than us, or they will be loaded with uh, cassava. Cassava is like lead, it's very heavy. They will be loaded with greens. We became basically peasants, and we experienced what peasants experienced. I remember the day when I was carrying something so heavy, as I was coming up the mountain, I heard a crack in my back. And as I walked, I didn't know if I would make it home. And I cried and sobbed like a child. And so the Lord took us through many things. In, meanwhile, my dad's house was destroyed. Emmanuel's car was bombed. We had lost everything we had. But Jesus was with us in the midst of all of that. We walked and walked and walked. Our feet were hurting. Do you want to add something? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, as they... They, they would stay in the outskirts of one village in abandoned buildings or sometimes outside uh, from one place to another. And they often had to walk through uh, snake-infested swamps or fields of army ants. She would walk like five miles a day often to get food for the family. Uh, wherever they would stay, there was no protection from the mosquitoes, which of course meant that they were susceptible to malaria. So at any given time, somebody in the family was sick and close to death, and th these are the kind of shoes that they had, except they often wore out. You call them flip-flops, we call them sandal. <laughs> and if, and if uh, you know, when they would wear out, your, your feet were there on the, on the bare ground, and so the feet were sometimes bleeding and, and so forth. And talking about malaria, I remember the time when um, being in one of those villages, and I had David. Hey, David is wearing pink, just because you wear what you get. I mean, coming from France, I was so fussy about what I wanted to wear and so on. And then I came to a place where I didn't have much to wear, and I was grateful for whatever I could wear. So that's why he was wearing pink. But anyway, so, <laughs> so um, when we woke up, in the, we woke up in the morning, I looked at David, I said, wow, it looks like he's grown more hair. And it was like 5.30 in the morning, and then when it, get, it started to get lighter and lighter, I realized that his hair was full of mosquitoes. So that was bad news. Of course, he got malaria, we all got malaria, and we got sick a lot during war. And the medicine was anointed oil. That's what we had. We will pray and seek the Lord to help us. If somebody had, um, a pill, we can use it, but one pill will not cure someone. Jesus was there, and he was the healer. Yeah. And when Medine was discouraged, uh, and she was just like ready to give up, one day she noticed somebody singing, and then she realized that the person who was singing about we oh. will overcome yes. was the baby on her back, who now sings a lot. <laughs> 
there are times when we go through difficulties and we don't know what to do. And prayer becomes just one name. And we cry out to Jesus and we pray. And as we went through war, we knew Jesus was with us. When we went through um, this grass that we call razor grass, we, know Jesus, we knew Jesus was with us. My dad, when they will push him on a wheelbarrow, the razor grass will slash him because he, could, he didn't have a way to, he was paralyzed on one side to protect himself. But the Lord always took us to the next stage. Uh, when we crossed the river, sometimes we just had one rail to cross the river with cries and people will sit there cursing the president, the person who brought war. We will start putting one foot after another, crying, Jesus, help me to cross this, uh, this one. When, when she says a rail, it's like, you know, the railroad track? It's one side, one rail. That's what they had to, that was their bridge to cross over yeah. the rivers. And, and Emmanuel had to carry his father on his back, and he also had to then navigate the wheelbarrow across this. So yeah. it was very dangerous. He did everything. And then there were times when we had to come and go down a, a steep mountain. And I always remember when people got to the mountain, they started to curse the president and whoever brought war. If somebody can die of curses, he would have died. But anyway, <laughs> and we got there, there was no way, no place you can, nothing you can touch to help you. And as my mom went down, she was able to get down there. She sat and put her back to the mountain and started to wail because she knew my father would not make it. Emmanuel started to get ready to come down. So we kind of make something to protect them. My sister Therese had the wheelbarrow with another friend. They said, if you you know, slip and fall, maybe this can help. And I had my dad's cane and I was like, okay, I guess I'm strong enough. I can pull you and we'll see what's gonna happen. And Emmanuel started to go down. The people who were up, it was hush, no one could talk. And inside my heart, it was just Jesus, Jesus help us. And then Emmanuel slipped. It's as if time stopped. You could hear, I mean, there was nothing. And it's as if that second went into eternity. We all just, we held our breath. We didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know how to explain that, except that Jesus was there. Because carrying a man, I mean, somebody who cannot hold on to you is like dead weight. But somehow, Emmanuel was able to right himself and start going down. And when we got down, there was a lot of cries, some of tiredness, hunger, and gratefulness, because the Lord was with us and helped us. During war, we drank water from places where you would not want to go. I remember the last day where they say, okay, war is going to the end, and we were drinking water from this well. I am curious. I wanted to go and see what's happening, what kind of water we were drinking. And then when they opened, uh, the well, because we had the soldiers from the war coming, um, from, uh, how do you call it, Doctors Without Borders, come in, it was really filthy. Um, and 
I just want to say, let's go to the last one because we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, the, the, um, but there was there, there were dead bodies and feces and stuff like that in the places they were drinking. In, and yeah, and they they didn't have much to eat. They had a meal a day. Uh, sometimes they would eat ferns or rats. Yeah, and. Again, they had to go through snake-infested swamps or fields of army ants, pick the ants off their body that were biting them. Yeah, and one thing that happened after war, when we came back to the house that was destroyed, was to see all these children. These children were David's friend. They played with David, and when we came back, they were, most of them were dead, either of malnutrition or bullets or something that happened during war. And that was very sad for me just to even to be in the, in the area and walk around the area. And that's one reason why I went to Pointe Noire and decided to go and start over there. Um, and there were three different people who had independently prophesied to her that she was gonna marry a white man with a big ministry. Yes. And there are not a lot of white men in Congo. So it was like, why would somebody say something like that? But these people didn't even know each other. That is true. <laughs> I'm just turning this along. So she... All right, so what happened was that um, I, got, <laughs> I got letters, the letters that, that came during war, and somebody found them and brought them to me, and those were letters that Craig sent me. And in all of the letters, he would say, you know, I, I, I hope you're well, I really miss you, I love you, like a sister. I was like, forget about sisters. I really like this guy. <laughs> and so <laughs> I talked to my brother, and he said, well, Medin, you guys are playing a game. Why don't you just write to him? I said, I can't propose to him. He's like, so what? I said, it's never done. He said, well, you have a PhD. You can do whatever you want. So I... <laughs> See, now, I'm an American, and the proper feminist way, the woman has to propose. Otherwise, you know, it's... Anyway. So I went ahead and sent Greg a letter. And actually, in my letter, I told him how I felt. And then I was like, okay, I'll wait and see what he says. Well, meanwhile, you know, I had been, uh, uh, I, I sent money. She was able to put David in, in a school. Um, and David, actually, before, uh, before I got the letter, David got malaria again, yeah. and he went stiff and almost died. And she's running through the mud and the rain to a nearby clinic to get him medicine because she had the money at this point. But the parents who didn't have the money, yes. their kids died. Yes. Um, she, what I didn't know, she was selling charcoal, charcoal to, to support herself and, and so on. And uh, there was a picture back earlier where she was staying in a shack with a tin roof. I didn't know what she was staying in, but the wind blew the roof off and the, the water would come up to uh, fairly high very often. But I, I was just pouring myself into my work. Um, I found out that it was possible to go on three hours sleep a night, so I kept working and working and working. What I didn't know was I could go on three hours sleep a night for a little while, but eventually it would catch up with me. And so I ended up in the hospital uh, and, and then flat on my back, unable to work for a while, and that's when her letter came. So it came at just the right time when I actually was in the state of being able to just focus on prayer because there's nothing else I could do. So we're going to forward to when we finally talk together, we decided oh. we're going to get married. Let's just forward because it's 11.45. And, <laughs> and we right. found ourselves in Cameroon where oh, we were. Just, just 
briefly. Her father's, when, when they came back to her father's house, she was like, they, they, were, they were scared of how the father would react because that was his whole life savings had been poured into the house. But he paused for a moment as he looked at it and then he lifted the one hand he could lift and said, let's thank God because we're all alive. Yeah. Now, can you talk about Cameroon? Uh, yeah, uh, Medin tried to get a visa. Well, she, she, she needed a passport to go to Cameroon. The new government had invalidated all, all the former government's passports. She went to the passport office to get a new passport. She'd, she'd sent ahead for it. There was no record that it had ever been filed for. It had been a couple months earlier. So we were panicked. And I was praying with a sister from Ghana who uh, said, uh, I feel like the Lord's saying it's done. I said, it's not done. Don't you understand? That's the problem. But the next day, Medin was pe pestering the people at the passport office, and somebody said, what's your name? Ah, your passport, no wonder it's not down there. It's here on my desk. So anyway, uh, so she ended up going to Cameroon. We were finally reunited after 11 years. Hadn't seen each other for 11 years. Um, I don't normally recommend that, but commuting was kind of expensive. Um, <laughs> and so I started... Uh, playing ball with David and so on. But then we had another complication because just as our file was ready to go to the immigration service, 9-11 happened and immigration rules changed overnight and it was really difficult. And David kept saying, oh, I'll come to Philadelphia with you tomorrow. But there was no way that uh, th they wouldn't approve it. But um, finally, to make a long story short, God would speak to us at many times. And, and, would, and one of the times he was saying, when your strength seems at an end, you see only the beginning of my strength. When your faith is at an end, my kindness has just begun. The time you thought me farthest, I was there embracing your pain. This is your God who shows himself true, the God of the cross. I who have brought you now to this time call you to look back and to see my exquisite handiwork to recognize my design so that you may trust me. The sea is vast, but it's not vast enough to begin to contain my boundless love for my children, nor to contain all the wisdom of my purposes. My giving love to you is greater than all the sands of the seashore, more vast than the seas, higher than the mountains, more awesome than the skies. Each of my children has a story, part of the larger story I'm weaving in history, as I will not lose track of the sand of the sea, so I do not lose track of any of my children. We're telling our story, but your story is part of God's story, just like our story is. And so this is meant to be an encouragement to you. We don't always see from our finite place in history what God is doing, but in the end, we'll see. When I was young, a young woman, I had dreams I wanted to marry a man with blue eyes. I thought he was going to be black and from my village. I wanted to go as high as I can with my studies. I wanted to have lots of children. I wanted to serve Jesus. When I look back, I did marry a man with blue eyes. He's not black, but I love him very much. <laughs> I did have my PhD by God's grace. I did have children. All of them are in heaven except for David and I serve Jesus. Jesus is worth everything, and his name is above all names. Yeah. And 
Um, the David who sang on our back is now the worship leader. Father, we pray that you will touch us all by your faithfulness. Help us to remember that you love us, not only when things are going well, but even when things are hard, that you still have a plan for us. And even though we may not see it from that moment, from the standpoint of eternity, we will see your hand of faithfulness with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.